Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the catechism memory work. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. And the Bible memory work. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10:16. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would keep forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. So um, I'm going to grab a... There's probably one over here. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily need a Bible, but I'm, I'm going to read a few passages. So if anyone wants to follow along, there is one. So I just remember Rod asked some questions at the end of Bible study that I wanted to specifically talk about, and he's not here today. So, uh, But we'll still talk about him anyway. He can just listen to the podcast. That's right. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about, uh, revisit the idea of the reality of the Lord's Supper a little bit, partly by way of review, but then um, also uh, to answer some of those questions. So questions that came up so um we want to get to the benefit of the lord's supper next but before we do that we'll keep talking about the idea of it being jesus true body and blood and one of the things that comes up uh that that rod had brought up was this idea of remembrance that okay so in the words of institution it says do this in remembrance of me and sometimes people will say use that as kind of an argument for a symbolic view of the lord's supper that if it's supposed to be remembering, then that's something that's happened in the past. Well, two kind of things I want to talk about to say why I think that's not exactly the case. 
um, is, first of all, the idea of remembrance in the Bible. So the context of the Lord's Supper is the Passover, right? It's whenever the, um, back in Exodus, whenever the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites and were oppressing them, and then the God raised up Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And to do that, there were all the plagues on Pharaoh, right? And the last plague was that the firstborn of all the Egyptians would be struck down. And for the Israelites to be protected from that, they had this Passover meal that then they put the blood of the lamb that they would slaughter for this Passover meal on the doorpost so that when the angel of death passed over, they would be protected. Well, um, whenever Jesus goes to... Uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper to institute the Lord's Supper, what are they doing? They're having that Passover meal. And that in itself shows that, uh, and and what does God tell Moses, right? He says, keep this meal every year as a remembrance of what has happened, of what I've done. And they would have that meal every year. The Israelites would. When they had that meal, um, and, and that in itself, by the way, shows that Jesus and the disciples, they're, they're participating in something from the past, right? So it's, yes, it's a, a remembrance, but it's continuing to be done, right? This do in remembrance of me. And in the same way in the Lord's Supper, right, it's something that Christ instituted at one time, but then it continues on throughout history, just like the Passover meal did. But uh, even more so, I want to look in the Old Testament. Whenever the Israelites would celebrate the Passover meal, even years and years afterwards, how did they consider it? Um, because the the way that the Bible uses the idea of remembrance is not the way that we use the term remember, right? So when we say remember, it's like, I remember I left my wallet in the truck, right? I, I'd forgotten something and now it, I remembered, right? Um, the way that the Bible uses remembrance is much more in this aspect of tradition, that something is continuing on. So it's more like a, like a family tradition that you participate in every year, right? And that tradition, while it was started at one point, it still is the real thing every year, right? Every time you do it. Um, so... Anyway, let, let me read this verse from one, uh, Psalm 136. Uh, Psalm 136, verses uh, 23 to 25. It is he who remembered us. So the context of this is um, the, the, the remembering the Passover, actually. This is maybe one of these, what they call halal psalms, praise psalms that they would say, actually, during the Passover. Um but notice the the way that the psalmist, and this is you know written years and years and years after, uh, centuries after the Passover. It is He who remembered us in our low estate for His steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes for His steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of heaven for His steadfast love endures forever. Okay, so when the um, and it, you can even, I just happened to glance down at it. Uh, we got Psalm 137 right after that, that the, the psalmist 
there is remembering the Babylonian captivity. But, and they, and they say, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So whenever the Old Testament Israelites speak about something, a major event, especially the Passover, that happened in the past, they talk about it like it happened to them, right? The Lord remembered us in our low estate. He rescued us from our foes. And so uh, the point there is that when we, the idea of doing something in remembrance in the Bible's view is that you're really participating in it. It's not just this past like, oh yeah, I remember, uh, you know, when we went to the zoo last year or something like that. It's not something that's purely in the past. It's something that actually continues on and that even centuries later, it's still happening to us. The second thing um, on the idea of reality and the do this in remembrance of me is we should also remember what else Jesus says, which is this is the New Testament in my blood. And we didn't talk about this last week, but what, what is a testament? Well, where do we hear that word in English most often? Someone's last will and testament, right? Um, and if you think about that idea, it's the same kind of idea as remembrance. If you receive from someone's will an inheritance, then that, let's just, just say it's money for the sake of ease of argument, that money is still real money, right? That money can still be spent and invested and, and whatnot. So when Jesus says, you have my blood as the New Testament, what I'm leaving you, and this is what Luther's talking about in that Christian questions and answers when he says, we should remember that it's a memorial, um, that he's giving us something that's still live and actionable right something that's still real uh and it's it's just like if someone were to leave us that inheritance the difference is in that analogy that that money will eventually probably you know be spent or go away somehow um or maybe it'll be invested and it'll just continue to to grow if if you know people aren't don't squander their inheritance right but um but the thing with with the lord's supper is as Jesus can, continues to give us his blood, right? Uh, he continues to fill up that, that inheritance. Hey, S- Steve, how you doing? I'm Sawyer. Good to meet you. Sorry, I'm late. Oh, you're good. We're just uh, talking about the Lord's Supper here. So. This is Pastor Mazzaferro. Uh, that's Am I saying that right? Yes. Okay, from Meridian? Meridian. Good deal. All right. Um so that's uh, kind of finishing up the reality of the, the Lord's Supper. Any questions or comments on that? Okay, so next I want to talk about the benefit. Um, so if you have uh, your catechism pamphlets there, we're, we're normally in the sanctuary, so we're kind of doing this on the fly here. But um, then we're, there's So there's two questions that Luther asked there. We're on page 19 and 20. First, he asked very directly, what is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins show us that in the sacrament there is forgiveness of sins, life and salvation given through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Um, 
then he also kind of asked a related question next. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking here do these things, but the words written here do these things, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. So just like with baptism, he's going to focus on the power of the word that enlivens the, the element, right? It's the word with the water that makes it baptism. It's the word with the bread and wine that makes it the Lord's Supper. Uh, whoever, these words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. And then whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, uh, the forgiveness of sins. So um, the benefit of the Lord's Supper, to put it very shortly, as Luther does, is the forgiveness of sins, right? And where there's forgiveness of sins, he says there's also life and salvation, now, one of the things that I think about a lot is um, in the means of grace, right? So you got baptism, you got the word, you got confession, absolution. We've talked about all these things now in our, in our What We Believe class. And now we have the Lord's Supper. All these things have the forgiveness of sins. And why did God not just give one of them, right? Like, we're sinners, we need the forgiveness of sins. Okay, baptism, boom, done, right? Like, why... Does he give all of these things? Well, I think two, two answers to that, and, we, and we've kind of talked about this before, I think. One is that we're poor, miserable sinners, right? And we need it constantly, right? I was just, um, I was teaching on Habakkuk this morning and, and Beautiful Savior and um, talking about the righteous shall live by faith. And in Habakkuk's time that he's specifically lamenting all the hardship in, in Judah and all the wickedness and the child sacrifice and everything that's going on and and god tells him the righteous shall live by faith and we're talking about that and and someone in the uh, bible study congregation said something insightful they said that's really hard thing to do i was like yeah it is it is hard to be patient and to trust in the promises of god it's hard to trust that he's working out all things together for good whenever life sucks and um this is why we need all the forgiveness of sins, right? This is why, this is the, the beautiful thing about Lutheran theology, I think, in some ways, is it's just constantly pumping you full of the forgiveness of sins, right? Uh, baptismal identity, hearing the word, reading the word, preaching the word, confession, absolution, Lord's Supper, right? Forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins, promises of grace, promises of mercy. Uh, we, we constantly need to be reminded of that. The... The other thing is that each of those means of grace has its own kind of unique way it relates to the sinner, I think. So baptism, we talked about this. This is the person's identity, right? This is this constitutes someone's relationship with God, right? That they are a baptized child, right? They Their father adopts them in baptism, the they become a co-heir and a brother with Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit, right? This is the constitutive act of the relationship with God. The Word is this, it's like a sheep feeding on a pasture, right? That's how Luther talks about it in, um, what's that? May God bestow on us His grace, right? Um, that on the Word, the, the sheep of the pasture feed, right? It's this ongoing food that, that nourishes us. Um, and grow and, and makes us strong. It, it's growing in us, right? And that's that that overlaps with the Lord's Supper some too. Obviously, the Lord's Supper is a meal. The the confession absolution 
that's specific forgiveness for specific sins, right? That's this specific comfort that comes with knowing, yeah, that sin that I just confessed, that sin is forgiven. Um, and then the Lord's Supper, it is food, right? It is nourishment for our faith. But it's also our um, interacting with God in, in the flesh, in person, right? Christ, Christ and the church are bridegroom and bride. That's how Ephesians 5 talks about it, right? That the church is the bridegroom of, of or the bride of, of Christ. What is a marriage? A marriage is a one flesh union. How do we have this fleshly union with Christ? It's through the Lord's Supper, right? I think if COVID taught us anything, it taught us that Zoom is not as good as in person. Sometimes, right? I mean, once in a while it's fine, but uh, there are times when when you need to be in person for something, right? And we need to be in person with Jesus. And this is how Jesus does that, right? He gives us his body and his blood. So um, I think that's, uh, when we talk about the benefit of the Lord's Supper, this is one of the, the real benefits is, and it, it does always strike me that when I talk to people who like, maybe they're in the hospital or they, they're shut-ins or, um, they were uh, maybe in the military or something and traveling um, and they, they haven't been able to be in church and not, not because they didn't like want to, just they couldn't be in church for whatever reason. Um, they never tell me they miss my preaching. <laughs> I mean, that would be, sometimes they're like, really, you didn't, you didn't miss my preaching? But no, um, they, they always tell me they miss two things. They miss the fellowship of, of the other Christians and they miss taking the Lord's Supper, right? They missed having that that personal face-to-face relationship with, with Jesus, right? So, um, or not face-to-face, but personal union, right? Physical communion, if you will, with Christ. All right, uh, so that's the, the benefit. Um, and then, of course, with that comes the forgiveness of sins. And I think this is kind of what Luther means, by the way, when he says, where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation, right? That particularly in the Lord's Supper, where where this forgiveness of sins is found, like you get all these other benefits as well. All right. Um, let's see here. Oh, I did, I did want to make this point as well. You can see what I just was describing in the uh, order of the divine service too. So you have, it, the service starts with baptism. Um, sometimes you have an actual baptism and the service starts with that. But even if it doesn't, you have the invocation, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the baptismal identity. And then you have the word. And, uh, well, then you have confession and absolution. And then you have the word, both read and then preached. And then you then you have the Lord's Supper. Right? So in a divine service, you get all the, all the means of grace um, tied, tied together. And they're they're all feeding you these different things, right? We do them each every Sunday. So, all right. Um, the next thing we want to talk about, next, so the next two things, and we'll see how far we get today. Um, I am gonna have to take off probably about 3:40 just to um, make sure everything's organized for the service. The next two things we're gonna talk about is closed communion, and uh, then just practical 
issues regarding the Lord's Supper. And we'll go back to those Christian questions and their answers for that as well. Although I don't think those are in this pamphlet, unfortunately. So, um, But that's okay. We looked at them a little bit last week. All right, so I'm going to give you three reasons why we practice closed communion. So uh, the, the practice of closed communion, just in case you're not familiar, um, I think most of you probably are, but is that only people that are um, confirmed members, basically, of or have gone through instruction, let's say, because uh, confirmation is, and I'll just say this, confirmation is not directly in the Bible, right? So we should be careful that we're saying instruction from a pastor under a pastor's guidance and then what that ends up looking like. For, for instance, there's, there's a right in the, uh, Lutheran service book agenda that's first communion prior to confirmation. So someone can be instructed and not necessarily be confirmed anyway. But anyway, a, a communicant member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod takes communion at Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod churches, right? And people who are not communicant members of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod churches normally do not, right? There are exceptions. There's always exceptions, right? Um, the important thing about exceptions is that exceptions don't make the rule, right? Exceptions uh, prove the rule, but they are not the rule themselves, right? This is always something of a problem when you talk about exceptions is everyone and their brother wants to be the exception. (laughs) It's like, no, it's an exceptional case because it's outside the norm. (laughs) But um, anyway, that's beside the point. All right. Uh, And this, the exceptions is why sometimes you'll also hear this called close communion instead of closed communion. Um, Or sometimes you'll see a written close apostrophe or not uh, parentheses D close parentheses close or closed communion. There's really no difference. The doctrine has never changed just the way that people talk about it has. But anyway, I want to give you three reasons. So first of all, um, this is one that you might not hear as often, but I think it's actually rather important. Come on in. I don't have a chair. Yeah. So, you sure? Here, here, we got you. All right. So the um, I'm just going to read a couple of Bible verses, and this is uh, specifically about kind of from the pastor's perspective. So this is something I don't I don't think really gets talked about enough a lot when we talk about closed communion. Um, that the the pastor has a job he has to do, and it's important I think for the congregation to know that uh, because. Well, simply because I think oftentimes it's not it's not thought about that uh, this isn't the pastor trying to be mean uh, or rude. It's the pastor trying to be faithful, and the pastor's trying to be faithful because he's going to be judged. So that, that's why I want to talk about. So, First um, Corinthians four uh, one through five. This is as one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul's talking about himself and other pastors here. And he says that they're stewards of the mysteries. Now, uh, for for centuries, the 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 most common interpretation of what this word mysteries mean here, and if whenever you talk, whenever the Greek uses the term mysteries, 
it's talking not about like a mystery novel. Have I talked about this before? Uh, so when, when the Bible uses the term mystery, it's not like a mystery novel where you don't know what's going to happen. It's saying that there are things that are revealed that we don't understand. right? So it's the mystery solved. Like we don't understand exactly how it works, but it's something that God has revealed to us. Well, one of those things, those mysteries and the, the common interpretation of what Paul's talking about here are the sacraments. That these the baptism and the Lord's Supper, we don't understand how these things work, right? These are mysteries to us. How can water do such great thing? How can bread and wine do such great things? These are mysteries, but they're revealed, right? We know what they are. And Paul says the pastors, they're stewards of the mysteries, right? So, and, and what is a steward? A steward is in charge of taking care of someone else's possessions, right? So these are God's possessions. It's his body and blood. It's his water. And he's giving them to pastors, right? It's his word of forgiveness, confession, absolution. He's giving them to pastors to steward on his behalf, right? And if you go back to confession, absolution, it's a good example because in John 20, right, the past, it's up to the pastors to decide whose sins are going to be forgiven and whose sins are going to be retained, right? He has to steward that. He has the forgiveness of sins and he has the retention of sins. He has to hear repentance and, and, and then steward that. Um, okay, so moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful or trustworthy. And he, he goes on to talk about then, um, I'm sure uh, Pastor Mazafaro can relate to this passage as I can. Um, he talks about what it's like to be a pastor of a congregation, basically, that's not happy with what he's doing, right? And I, I've, I've actually been very blessed in, in my, my three years as a pastor. I mean, there's all, of course, there's always one thing here or there, right? But nothing major. Um, oh, I have stories. Yeah. Another time. Yeah, he's, there you go. <laughs> I'm just waiting because, I, I mean, I know it's inevitable. Like, eventually I'm going to say something stupid. And um, Yes, Mr. Anderson, it is inevitable. <laughs> so, but, but it is, it is a, I, I do love Paul here because um, he's, He's kind of, I mean, he's talking to the Corinthians, right? And the Corinthians are the, they're the church that he's the pastor of longest. And he knows them the best, right? You can tell by the way he writes. Um, But he's kind of talking, he's, to use the the college age language, right? He's subtweeting them, you know. (laughs) He's talking about them, right, when he's talking to them, but he's not using their names, so. Um. But with, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Well, actually, just he does say by you, right? Or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. So Paul says, look, at the end of the day, I don't really care what you think about me <laughs> or what I do. I have to be faithful, right? And he says, I, and Paul is confident. He says, you know, I think I've been faithful, right? But that also doesn't mean I'm acquitted. That doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm not going to be judged. I am going to be judged by God, but that's up to God, right? But I have to be found faithful. I have to, I have to do what I think is right, right? I can't, and it doesn't matter if a human court says otherwise, 
I have to be a faithful steward of the mysteries. Okay. Um, likewise, I'll uh, just to add to that, uh, James three one. You might flip past James if you're not careful. So, all right. Um, James warns, "Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness." Okay, this is all over in the Old Testament um, with the prophets, and also appear. This is just one example. Appears multiple places in the New Testament as well. This idea that those who are called to be teachers, they are going to have a stricter judgment. Right, because it's worse for a uh, teacher to teach falsely and thus lead other people astray than it is for one person who is not teaching to believe falsely. Right? It's on a practical level, it's just way worse. Right? If you have a, a pastor who is believes and teaches false doctrine, that's way worse than if just one random person happens to believe false doctrine, right? And so uh, teachers are going to be judged more strictly. And so again, with close communion, um, this is uh, something that pastors have to deal with, right? They want to be faithful stewards of the mysteries that have been given them, and they don't want people to eat and drink to their judgment. We're going to get to that as, as well, and actually what the, the really th- the theology behind close communion is. But I, I just always like to point this out because I think sometimes it's, it's overlooked, is that um, the reason that pastors want to practice closed communion, it's not just because that's the history of the church or um, not, it's not only just because, and I want to be careful with this, uh, because that's how they personally interpret 1 Corinthians 10 or 11 or something like that. But there is a drive there that, and I think it's a good drive and a healthy drive, that pastors are motivated to be faithful because they will be judged on account of their faithfulness. right? Um, and so my, my kind of plea for you, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir because... You're the ones who show up to Bible study and listen to what I have to say and everything anyway. But um, my plea is, you know, if, if with with closed communion, I know it can be a touchy subject at times, that uh, one of the things we think about is that the pastor who's practicing that is is trying to do the right thing, right? He's trying to be faithful because he has to give an account to God, right? Um, for what he teaches and what he practices. All right. Um, the the third, the second reason, so I'm kind of going in order here of importance. We're going to actually get to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Um, my second reason is a historical argument. So basically no church body in the history of the New Testament Christian church, with some exceptions here and there, of course, practiced closed communion or, sorry, excuse me, I said that completely wrong, practiced open communion where the, basically anyone who wants to can take communion or even a version of open communion where it would be like um, if you're a baptized believer, you can take communion, but if you're an atheist, you can't or something like that. Um, 
no one really practiced that. That wasn't widespread until the 1960s and, and 70s when, when uh, what we call now in a technical term, I don't mean this in a political sense, but a technical way, liberalism entered into interpretation of the Bible right, in, in our modern society. And um, I don't know, are you familiar with Chesterton's Fence? Have you ever heard this? So there's this theologian uh, from the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he's, he's a Catholic, but the Catholics kind of hate him and the Protestants kind of love him because he's really more Protestant than Catholic. Anyway, um, but Chesterton's great. And he's got this writing, I can't remember what book it's in, but it, it, it talks about Chesterton's Fence. Or it's it's now referred to as Chesterton's fence, but he's describing how um, if you come up if you're walking through the woods and you come up to a fence, don't take it down because you don't know why it was put there, right? It was probably put there for a good reason, and uh, I think he gives some examples of like what happens if someone takes the fence down or whatever. But uh, the the idea is if we come across something in the Christian church that. New Testament Christians have been doing for, you know, 2,000 years, basically, you know, 1,960 years or whatever the case may be, um, plus or minus 30. Uh, probably don't mess with it, right? It's probably just a good idea to respect what what everyone's always thought and the way that everyone's interpreted the Bible until, until now. I mean, it is possible, right, that maybe we've missed something for 2,000 years and we need to correct it. Um, that Certainly that's possible. Now, I, I think the scriptural argument should, will show that's not the case here, but um, it's pretty unlikely, right? Like, especially with something as kind of major as, as who, who's going to take communion, right? This is definitely something people have thought about before. So if we come up to... To, to this fence, right? Close communion. Let's not just like take it down just because it's it seems rude to us now or something like that, right? So, and that's so that if you think about the 1960s and 70s and liberalism, um, for I mean, what are they saying? One, they're saying that the Bible's not holy God's word, and that a lot of the things in the New Testament those are just cultural and we can just do away with them, right? Um, which is is kind of a dangerous way to approach the Bible. And then, too, kind of in society, right, you have this um, culture of, you know, peace, love, and rock and roll. Let's all just get along, um, you know, kind of no rules, uh, no, no structure, uh, so on and so forth. And so the, that, that obviously goes along with open communion, right, where the, the churches that started practicing open communion, their argument was, well, we just want to be accepting of everyone, right? And that sounds nice on the surface, but ultimately I think the, the scriptural argument, which we'll get to here, um, shows that that's actually not the nice thing to do. Um, that we're actually, again, going back to Chester's defense, it's there for a reason. It's there to protect people. So, uh, all right, those are the two minor reasons. Let's get to the major reasons. So 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. What time? Okay, thanks. Yeah, it's something I would get 340. Um, so for 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll start at 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. This is going to be our starting point. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks of the cup without discerning, or eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Um, and he goes on, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Um, so the, the first starting principle there is that the Lord's Supper can bring harm to someone that eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. It can bring spiritual judgment, right? Um, and we don't know exactly what Paul uh, is referencing here um, as far as what exactly these illnesses and weaknesses and, and death looked like, but um, he's saying that there's such unworthiness in the in the sacrament and in, in, in the Corinthian church that people are uh, he sees that as a connection to people becoming ill and dying, um, which is kind of an interesting thing. But uh, regardless of that, right, there's still a spiritual judgment, right, that uh, happens if someone eats and drinks unworthily, okay? And so to go back to the pastor argument, right, one of the things pastors want to do is protect people from that, right? And this doctrine um, of closed communion, right, that people who are... Uh, not worthy or potentially not worthy to eat and drink, that's why this is in place, right? To protect people from eating and drinking harm on themselves, right? We want people, we want it to be for the good of the, the conscience, right? And the analogy for this, right? What, so you might ask, why does it cause harm? Well, think about the holiness of God, right? It's like the sun. It gives life, and it's bright and it's wonderful, right? But if you get too close to the sun and you're not ready, you're not protected, then you're going to burn up, right? It's uh, The other analogy I use for this is like if, if a parent walks into a room and a kid's doing something he's not supposed to, there is an automatic judgment there by the presence of the parent, right? You don't, you don't have to ask what they're doing. They don't have to uh, show you or explain to you what they're doing. The fact that the parent is there, automatically the kid's like, you know, hides whatever it is and, and uh, it, you know, is, is uh, feel like has the feeling of uh, shame, right? There's, a, there's an automatic judgment that happens with the presence, right, just by being there, right? Because the parent has a certain standard for the children, right? And so, likewise, when we come into the presence of God, we don't have to, we don't have to, like, discuss what sin is and the Ten Commandments and go through some sort of theological debate about whether or not we really sinned. Like, if God's, if we're present with God and we're poor sinners, there's a judgment, Right? It's, it's implicit. Well, we need to be prepared then to, to come into the presence of God. Okay, so this is why there's uh, a judgment that happens. And so how do we prepare? How is one worthy? Well, Paul says here that uh, a person should examine himself and that they should discern the body, right? A person should examine himself and discern the body. So in other words, they should be repentant and they should recognize what it is that they're eating and drinking. Those are the two bare minimum requirements, right? They should be a repentant sinner, right? So they believe in the gospel. They believe 
Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, right? And they've received that forgiveness, and they are discerning what, what it is that they're doing, right? Um, and you can see that in what Luther says, who receives the sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation certainly find outward training, but the person who is truly worthy and well-prepared, who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, right? So it's the person that is faithful and recognizes what the, the body and blood is. Right. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. For the words for you require our hearts to believe. Okay. Um, so, that still doesn't quite answer our question of closed communion. Because we would certainly say there are repentant sinners that can discern the body and blood that aren't LCMS. Right? So, I think what's happening here in the small catechism for one is that like i said earlier luther does not deal with the question of who is welcome to the table he only deals the question with who is worthy because you know what was happening in 1500 in the 1500s closed communion right it was there was no debate about closed communion everyone agreed on it right so he has no reason to talk about the specific practice of closed communion other than worthiness but what I want to do is distinguish between um, worthiness and welcomeness, okay? Because there, in something else that we're going to see here when we get back into the Bible is that worthiness is, first of all, the most important thing, right? And this is what can cause someone to eat and drink to their judgment. But there's also an issue of welcomeness at play of who is actually invited on a given Sunday at a given place to the table. And uh, Sunday or another day, I should say. It's not necessarily just Sunday. But um, And one of the ways you can think about this is that there's a definitely a vertical relationship, right, between the, the person receiving communion and God at, at time of the Lord's Supper. But there's also a horizontal relationship, with the people there that they're there together with. What's that? Time. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to welcomeness. Uh, finish that after after uh, we come back. I'll, I'll go ahead and just give you a hint, so I'm not like leaving you completely hanging. Is uh, that if you read the context of First Corinthians, just in general, really, but specifically 10, 11, and 12, the context is about church fellowship. It's about how do we get along together. And um, that's one of the things that is a problem is when people of different divisions are coming and trying to take communion together. So anyway, we'll, we'll get to that next week. All right, let's uh, end in a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that you would uh, bless our time together in worship today as uh, we seek to worship in spirit and in truth. We pray that the preaching of your word and your sacraments uh, administered may be a blessing to all those who hear and receive. And we pray especially and give thanks uh, today for the installation of uh, Vicar Bennett, that uh, you will bless the installation and uh, that you will continue to provide for this church as, as you have been showing yourself to do. We pray this. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.